Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. First of all, we were really excited to start new shows again. We had a bit of a summer break because of our schedules and other engagements, but we're very happy to be back and bringing you new shows. And today we're kicking off our summer season with Sara Kamali, and she is here to talk about her new book, Homegrown Hate, Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War Against the United States. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sara. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chelsea. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I do wanna make sure I thank um, Sina as well, who um, I know couldn't be here today, but it passed along my regards. Fantastic, and we're so excited to have you. For our listeners, Sara is a PhD in holistic justice and an activist and scholar of systematic inequalities, white nationalism, and militant Islamism, interlocking institutions of power, oppression, and adjusting systems of privilege for the select few. She has, of course, this new book out. She has other writings, so please Google her to find out more about her research and interests. And she also has a number of fellowships, which we're not going to get into because it's a, it's a very impressive list, and we only have so much time. But why don't we just start to talk about how this book came about, because it really is one of the first books that compares American militant white nationalists with American militant Islamists, which is really interesting because unfortunately, we don't really see a lot of research and work that looks at both of these communities, but they're very important because while there are differences, there are similarities. Yes, thank you so much for that very um, kind and generous introduction. Um, I started researching the book um, well, essentially, I should say that the book is a culmination of more than 10 years of research. So as an undergraduate, I was very privileged to have studied at the University of St. Andrews, where I um, worked at um, the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, which is now the Henda Center. Um, but at the time, students were working there um, essentially um, as policy analysts. Um, in different regions around the world. And I was working in the Middle East because my um, undergraduate degree was in international relations and Middle East studies. Um, and then from there, really, it was the, um, the context of 9-11 and the national security paradigm shift that occurred with that tragic event um, certainly shaped my interest in political violence as well as terrorism. And so the theme of the book and the fact that it is comparative um, is really a culmination of the context in which um, I grew up and many of us have certainly grown up. And um, I think I'm the last generation who remembers vaguely what life was like pre 9-11. Uh, in you know, most people reference airports, etc. But certainly the existential threat of violence was not necessarily prevalent when I was very young, um, as it is now. And so I do want to let the listeners know that the book, all of it is not comparative. Um, there are four different parts to the book, and part three is specifically comparative. So the way that it's set up is to understand um, the ideologies and histories and organizations respectively, uh, within parts one and two, and then that sets up the basis for comparison in order to in comparison as well as the the points of contrast between um, white nationalism and militant Islamism. 
And I mean, I've gone through the book. It is packed with so much information and very in-depth. So it's, it's really a fantastic piece of work. So congratulations on that. And why don't we talk about how you went about methods for this book? Because I know you mentioned interviews and other research methods, which I know some of our listeners, especially the academic community that tends to listen to the Loopcast, probably would really love to hear about this. Right. Um, so thank you again. And I do want to mention for the academic community and the public scholarship community, as well as the general audience who likes to be informed that this the intention of the book, um, why I set out to write the book, is that I really wanted to, um, I wanted a resource for myself on the um, on white nationalism, as well as militant Islamism. And uh, that's why I set out to provide what I hope is the most comprehensive resource to date um, on both ideologies. Um, and in terms of methods, so certainly there was an extensive period in which I interviewed um, people involved with both ideologies. That was essentially what made up my doctoral work. And then um, combing through archives and publications um, and of course, online sources. And if we look at the spectrum or the um, media, um, the media resources of white nationalists, for example, have been very sophisticated for decades, if not a century, in terms of publication houses and newsletters and radio programs and um, um, all sorts of communications within the various uh, groups that make up the constellation of white nationalists. So one of the reasons why the book took 10 plus years was not necessarily the writing portion, it was more the, the, the research portion of it and um, really making sure it's the most up-to-date, up-to-date resource and comprehensive in terms of views, you know, um, even including FBI reports, for example, Freedom of Information Act, etc. So there's a lot of, the paper trail is, is quite extensive, yes. And I would say with regard to interviews, I mean, that's a trust building relationship. And of course, the pandemic has perhaps changed things, changed the, the specter of what types of interviews are perhaps possible in the current moment. Um, but certainly uh, social media has very much um, facilitated those conversations as well as actually um, inhibited those conversations as well. Because I think particularly when it comes to um, when it comes to engaging in research in terrorism and uh, political violence, um, there's certainly a concern of backlash and of doxing, for example, and then, uh, then the um, complexities of uh, being a woman scholar, a lady scholar, as I like to say, I like to reclaim that word lady. And um, there are certain considerations that have to be um, taken into account that I was that I was cognizant of and and can be difficult to wade through. And I don't think that we're necessarily having that that those types of discussions enough within academia, within public scholarship, and even from a um, governmental agency institution. I mean, I know we're, we'll get to the list of questions, but I would like for uh, people to perhaps, you know, center those conversations when it comes to engaging not only in uh, researching archival work for, or, or archives for um, terrorism studies, for example, or 
you know, political violence um, paperwork. Uh, but I think it's very important to, um, if you're in a position of mentoring students to be cognizant and to um, be proactive about those conversations about what might be the drawbacks to this type of research and how the institutions um, can support um, students, student scholars um, at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Oh, I completely agree with you. I know that there's a couple of institutions that are starting to shape discussions and, and look into this field, but it is very important, especially for, like you said, the next generation, the up and coming researchers who will be dealing with these issues and the online environments and potentially interviews will maybe sometime have another Loopcast discussion about that. Well, I hope so. And also, um, just to tie, tie that aspect of uh, methodology up, it's also important for um, law enforcement agencies and federal, you know, throughout the, the different um, levels of um, uh, national security oversight um, to understand what researchers are trying to do and not necessarily inhibit um, their research, because that can also be um, scary to have the FBI um, ask a researcher, well, I noticed that you were scanning these websites or scaring these websites or joining these types of um, chat rooms. Why is that? And so um, we can perhaps talk about uh, the recently released um, uh, counterterrorism strategy, the first ever um, first ever national counterterrorism strategy recently released by the Biden administration. And that was a uh, one component is for um, um, academics to be more engaged in this type of research but then again you know law and law enforcement agencies have to perhaps facilitate that um more than they're doing now very interesting and very true and hopefully there'll be more on this topic in the future especially with the new administration so mm -hmm. time will tell why don't we discuss the differences and similarities between american militant white nationalists and american militant Islamists. And I know you have a couple of categories and important findings from your research. Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity. So I will not give away too many spoilers. I'd like for the uh, readers to engage with the text however they see fit. So whether that be reading all of the uh, white nationalist chapters and then the militant Islamist chapter separately, um, or reading the book uh, linearly, um, uh, let them uh, explore those themes for themselves. But I will say uh, the, there are strong parallels between the white nationalist worldview and the militant Islamist worldview, particularly when it comes to um, uh, the narrative, the respective narratives of victimhood, as well as how grievances toward the United States specifically in terms of either domestic or foreign policies are leveraged and propagandized to justify violence. And of course, there are certain stark differences uh, in terms of the makeup and in terms of how religion specifically and beliefs broadly are used um, within those within the, those respective narratives. So we can we can get into that a little more as you um, if you'd like. Yeah, let's actually talk about that a bit. Um, you mentioned in your book different things like religious scripture, and you referenced the 14 words. Why don't we talk about that a bit for our listeners that may not know about this? It's, it's very interesting how you, you take these different 
religious scriptures and dictates and elaborate on them and encapsulate it within the whole book and your findings? The way that I categorize white nationalism within homegrown hate is that I organize the complex constellation of belief along um, uh, through four categories. So the first one is um, racist. So essentially just exclusively the um, organizations and individuals who support white supremacy and advocate for white supremacy. Then there are religions that um, support and preach white supremacy. There are also anti-government adherents, and then uh, con the conspiracy theorists and disinformation um, element. And all of these can be an amalgamation thereof. So while there are sometimes discrete and disparate elements, there are certainly a cross-pollination of these um, four elements in terms of um, organizations and groups, which I, which I uh, detail quite extensively within the first chapter. And what is interesting is how the 14 words or the concept of um, the 14 words, which was penned in 1988 by white nationalist ideologue David Lane, who is revered in many circles as a martyr, how the 14 words itself has become a motto and, and, and uh, the linchpin of the ideology, not only expressing the views post-1988, but also really encapsulating the views and um, how white supremacy and, and militancy play a role pre-1988. So even though the 14 words was penned in 1988, the ethos of the 14 words really encapsulates um, the mission, the ideology, and the various facets of belief um, within white nationalist ideology as a whole. So the 14 words are, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And then of course the we um, is very much um, white, the white race. So there's an idea within white nationalism that there is a white race. So it very much counters the notion that um, race is a socio-political construct. Uh, for a white nationalist race is a biological and cultural um, fact. And then secure the existence is very much speaking to the militancy and the need for violence. And then of course, our people, which is very much a precursor to the MAGA ideal, and then a future for white children. And so again, there's this idea that of, of ensuring a white ethno state specifically. And there are um, variations on the 14 words. One of them is because the beauty of the white Aryan woman must not perish from the earth. So there's that element of centering um, femininity and a specific idea of the feminine and what is what does it mean to be a woman as a vessel of the white race, um, which uh, is an element that can also be construed as misogyny, how women are not only targets of violence, but also um, um, also uh, part of perpetuating violence, which we can talk about. So in terms of, um, I'm saying all of that to um, to preface, to um, preface the context of the book, and when we talk about the um, when we talk about white nationalism, it's not just Proud Boys or Three Percenters. Um, even within the January Sixth insurrectionists, there's a whole um, 
cosmology of complexity that needs to be understood. And I think that's very often lacking within the media narratives um, because it's a 24 seven news cycle, of course. Um, and also the information is so condensed and there's only so much nuance that can come across or very little nuance, I should say, that can come across. So I think it's very important for the listeners to understand that um, white nationalism is very longstanding um, and uh, quite entrenched within, within the United States. And with that being said, of course, the book to an extent is comparative. So let's talk about the other side of it, the American militant yes. Islamists. Yeah. When we think about how complex the ideology is within white nationalism, the same can be said of American militant Islamists and militant Islamists um, as a whole. And um, the same sense of victimhood that is underlined and communicated by the 14 words and the same um, urgency for militancy and violence in order to protect um, a specific group is also very prevalent and central to militant Islamist ideology. And so there are a variety of concepts such as wala wal bara. So there is this dichotomy, um, again, the Manichaean world view essentially of um, our people versus them. So there's an us and them worldview that um, very much splits the world, not in terms of race, but in terms of belief. And al-wala um, wal-bara means loyalty and disavowal, us and them, essentially. And so there, the reason why, um, as a little asterisk for the uh, listeners, um, I really ensured to use the uh, correct diacritical marks, etc., in order to convey you know, I wanted this to be a comprehensive resource for researchers, as well as the informed informed audience and whomever, you know, was going to engage with this book in the future. Um, and so there, the terminology is there in italics and diacritics, um, and there was a debate about that. Um, but there are many concepts that are central to the militant Islamist ideology that are just as informative and as um, central as the 14 words. Uh, and there are many concepts that stem from religion. And so I think that would be somewhat of a different, um, of, a of a point of contrast. So as whereas white nationalism does certainly encompass religions, including militant Mormonism, you know, uh, Latter-day Saints, um, and the militant expression of that, including white nationalist evangelicalism, including Christian identity, which is inherently militant, including Odinism or Wotanism, more specifically, and including atheism and agnosticism, for example, militant Islamism takes a religion specifically that it is adhered to by more than 2 billion people in the world, and then um, uh, refracts that through the through the through the prism of militancy and necessitates violence and understands this uh, belief system um, as um, waging war against anybody who is deemed to be the other so there is certainly a a um a difference there and what about different concepts like apocalyptic visions which we see on both ends, um, which also, in a sense, falls into the concept of accelerationism. Why don't we talk about that from both spectrums of militant white nationalists and militant Islamists? 
Yeah, thank you so much. So it's interesting too that the term accelerationist has come about um, because initially that does have different meanings and this is the academic side of me coming out. Um, uh, the term accelerationist does have different meanings, um, you know, even when it outside of outside of terrorism, political violence. So it can also mean um, people who see technologies, uh, technology as the end game, for example. But within um, within um, homegrown hate, um, there are certainly a chapter devoted to apocalypticism because the idea that the world is ending and that people um, groups see themselves as the, as the victors and as the inheritors of divine blessings because they were engaged in um, holy war essentially uh, certainly drives both uh, both white nationalists, at least a specific segment of them, as well as um, militant Islamists more generally. So um, the role of Jesus, for example, while one wouldn't necessarily think um, Jesus is a, an important figure in perhaps white nationalism or even in militant Islamism, certainly um, for example, Jesus does play a large role in terms of the um, beliefs in the end times. So there are a lot of points of reference, and also in terms of in terms of the conference of divine blessings um, at the end of the world, apocalypticism is a a prevalent and prominent um, theme within the ideologies of both. And how does it play into, say, current affairs and? current matters here in the United States? Apocalypticism will justify the narrative for certain groups and, um, and imbue legitimacy um, and in terms of um, conferring legitimacy and also a, a sacred aspect to the violence that individuals and or groups are waging. And you also mentioned earlier issues when the media discusses the siege on the Capitol, January 6th, so you had mentioned that there are some misconceptions about those involved with the siege and mm -hmm. sort of from the white nationalist militant side of it. Yes. Um, well, I think, and you know, it would be interesting to, to hear your perspective on the media narrative specifically, but very often um, Trump is seen as the, um, uh, President Trump, is seen as inciting the insurrectionists and it was as if white nationalists didn't exist or if they did there was a completely different formulation of white nationalism um, pre-president trump um, the way that i view it is that president trump has harnessed the anxieties of white people who view themselves as victims and disenfranchised culturally, perhaps religiously, um, uh, numerically to people of color, as well as um, immigrants broadly. And so, for example, we have the KKK, and that is still prevalent. And David Duke, for example, the former Grand Wizard of the KKK, endorsed uh, President Trump, as did the, the newspaper. Um, one of the newspapers uh, endorsed his presidency. and. That was somewhat seen as an anomaly at the time. And then lo and behold, January 6th ha um, happens with um, President Trump's um, tacit and um, explicit endorsements. Um, 
And I think very often we hear of certain groups like the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters or the Proud Boys, for example, or even the uh, another term like neo-Nazi, but not understanding the historical context in which um, in which white nationalism is entrenched within the United States in terms of the institutions, nor does the understanding of January 6th contextualize um, the complexity of the organizational leaderships, the canon of literature, for example, um, the complexity of worldviews that have to do with religion, with racism, with anti-government views, with conspiracy theories. So these are not disparate elements. Again, I'm going back to what I was um, uh, saying at length earlier, the, the um, ideology of white nationalism is more complex um, than I think perhaps uh, people are um, understanding just from reports of January 6th specifically. And I'm, I'm curious to know, what do you think about um, how the information of the insurrection is, is conveyed? So going back to intricacies, um, do you think those intricacies are made made obvious to people from your point of view? I think that would depend on the news outlet A that you're watching. So the mm -hmm. source of information that is providing you with a narrative, because not all narratives are the same, unfortunately. Um, there are many ways of looking at it, depending on political leanings. Um, of course, politics plays a strong role here in the States. But I mean, I do think that there are many individuals and many groups or people that associated with a specific group or movement involved in the events January 6th, yet there was a lot of small groups versus large groups organizing. So it was almost a mix and a mesh of, of different people that right. participated that day. Right. And um, I certainly think that the, the chapter one of Homegrown Hate is reflective of that complexity. Um, and certainly all the groups that participated are in that in the in the first chapter for a reason. Um, and that actually brings me to a point that um, I would like to briefly mention um, is that the, the concept of the lone wolf, I know we talked before the recording um, about uh, perhaps you know, talking about the lone wolf, but really that's that's a misnomer that continues today. So while Biden's counterterrorism strategy certainly is novel and refreshing in that it, it acknowledges white nationalist white nationalism as a national security terrorist threat, um, there are certainly um, inadequacies. Um, and one of them is um, not dispelling the myth or perpetuating the myth of the lone wolf. And um, that is certainly something that my book seeks to address as well is undoing the myth of the lone wolf. And again, contextualizing the communications, um, even if we look at manifestos specifically and how the ideas of white nationalism are, or the promoters and the ideologues of white nationalism um, transnationally have influenced each other specifically through manifestos. So um, for your listeners who are interested, I would encourage you to look at um, the last chapters. I mean, there's a reason why the uh, one of the chapters is, is dedicated to dispelling this myth of the lone wolf. And I think that's a very important topic because there's this idea of how lone really is a lone wolf, so to speak, especially now with um, communication technology and the internet and 
access to information. And I know your book talks about that. Another thing that you do mention is how white privilege, in a sense, has aided white nationalism here in the United States. And that is a strong statement, but also pretty straightforward if you look at everything, our institutions and so forth. So I want to talk about that a bit, especially now that we're in the post-Trump era here in the U.S. And it's also white liberal complicity as well. And I'm certainly not the first person to discuss white liberal complicity. Um, I do highlight um, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's work um, and, and statements with, uh, with regard to white liberal complicity, as well as those of um, Malcolm X. And um, certainly they're in much better positions to speak about white liberal complicity um, and the effect on perpetuating um, racism, but I think it's certainly important for people to understand um, how um, simply identifying as progressive is not going to be enough to address the systemic inequities that allow um, the dehumanization of people of color, for example, to continue. And so we're certainly seeing these systemic inequities right now raging on with the debates over um, critical race theory um, specifically, as well as the, the, the ability to discuss the socio-political concept of race, for example, the role of racism, whether or not systemic racism is even a real um, dynamic within American history, which is another example. Um, and then separate from, well, not necessarily separate, but adjacent to education, there's also the um, the restriction of voter rights as well. And so we can see that white liberal complicity, and certainly there are um, Americans today who um, are white and who do have skin color privilege, and yet who would um, disagree with um, the restrictions in both education and voting, yet who don't necessarily actively participate in addressing those inequities um, and advancing justice. So the reason I am discussing race and racism with regard to counterterrorism is because even as we can see with um, the Biden's, Biden's uh, counterterrorism strategy, um, that these, that race and racism and uh, the education system essentially are going to have to be reformed in order to um, address, assess, and redress the inequities that have allowed white nationalism to thrive. And what's interesting too is that I talk about that in the conclusion of the chapter. I talk about these issues um, in relation to counterterrorism specifically through um, a concept I call holistic justice. And what is interesting is that the recently, recently released re uh, strategy and has four pillars and the last one is essentially um, articulating many of the concepts that I also discuss, that I discuss in um, as part of the uh, holistic justice framework that I advance. So certainly um, discussing the role of, of race, how it's, how it is a construct um, and how um, racism is leveraged as a tool of violence and um, uh, in order to exacerbate inequities and, and oppress and um, and leverage power is certainly going to be needed in order to um, counter terrorism effectively. 
And if we look at how the inequities towards um, communities of color and specifically Muslim Americans um, have come about because of the post 9-11 framework, we need to ensure that the post 1-6 national security framework um, eliminates these inequities um, whilst also effectively addressing the systemic causes and, and um, drivers of white nationalism. And why don't we talk a little bit more about holistic justice and your definition of what that would look like and even potentially how the U.S. could successfully enact it within domestic security. Right. Well, I um, so holistic justice is a is a counterterrorism framework. Oh, and I should say national security framework, and it relies on the principles of empathy and anti-oppression, um, as well as eliminating the current systemic inequities, particularly with regard to the criminalization of um, black and brown. Um, Americans and um, Islamophobia essentially that underlines the post 9-11 security paradigm. Um, so what I mean by empathy, and I know we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but that also goes back to the methods, is essentially understanding why people who, uh, Americans who would engage in violence and perpetrate acts of terrorism against their own country would do so. And of course, we know that trans terrorism is also transnational. So why do people engage in uh, political violence and understanding their worldviews? Um, with regard to holistic justice, empathy also means understanding the, the um, histories of the communities one identifies with. So whether one identifies as white or black or combinations and multiplicities of identities, um, how, how do these histories play out within the context of America? And that's really important to understand as we're seeing the debate over critical race theory currently, it's not about white is bad and and um, criminalizing white people. It's about understanding how race has been um, constructed and how racism is wielded um, as a tool of violence. Similarly, um, how queer phobia is wielded as a tool of violence, how um, ableism is wielded as a, as a tool of violence um, across, across the um, intersections of identities, essentially, is understanding how, um, how these frameworks play out within the context of one's own country. And then the idea of um, anti-oppression is essentially calling for solidarity amongst different groups that are minoritized and that are marginalized uh, to rally around white nationalism and uh, within the context of their local community. So at the nonprofit level, at the grassroots level, um, enacting public policy change um, within systems. So whether that be media, education, um, healthcare, et cetera, to center center the experiences and, and amplify the voices of uh, marginalized communities in order to redress the inequities that um, white nationalism has, called, has caused. And so how this plays out into the national security paradigm specifically is that both um, empathy and anti-oppression decenter the national security paradigm from a security pair from a security framework. So it's no longer looking at national security um, as through the lens of law enforcement and um, armed armed forces. Even though, of course, that's going to be continued to be a, a, an important component. What it does do is that it reframes the national security paradigm to 
to uh, center and give platform to um, education and public health, for example. Um, and certainly we're going to need a paradigm shift and that's what holistic justice calls for in order to create an effective uh, counterterrorism strategy that will take into account the full complexities of both white nationalism as well as militant Islamism and also the realities of both. Because uh, for a long time, white nationalism has been minimized as we have seen and the outcome has been January 6th. Um, and for a long time, militant Islamism has been um, wielded as um, an existential security threat, as well as cause a great deal of suspicion and harm um, amongst Muslim uh, American communities specifically and between Muslim Americans and their American uh, neighbors. Um, so understanding and um, creating equity within the, uh, within the national security framework is certainly going to be the end result of holistic justice if um, properly instituted. And I feel like that is a perfect segue into one of my other questions, which you do address in the book, is how do we reclaim identities? You mentioned there's been a lot of inequities and misunderstandings about certain groups here in the States, especially Muslim Americans. A lot of that stemming from, of course, fear, September 11th, and, and other issues that we've seen in the last number of years. But how do we reclaim identities? And also stemming from miseducation and media um, um, representation and the lack thereof as well, of course. Um, and reclaiming, I would, I would like to ask you is when you read the portion on reclaiming identities, and I do appreciate you taking the time to do so. Um, yeah, I would like to ask you, what was your response? Or what were your thoughts on that? In what sense do you mean? Because you know there is a whole section on this. So yeah, yeah well, in, in terms of in terms of how important it is to recalibrating the national security framework, I think it's definitely important. I do think there has been some progress within the broader national security field to take in, into consideration preconceived ideas, um, false representations of identity. I think a lot of this has also come about from trial and error when it comes to certain um, security measures that we've placed both here in the States and overseas as well in different countries. So I think it's a work in progress, but I think it's definitely something that we do need to take into consideration because unfortunately, when there are any preconceived ideas or Prejudices, perhaps. Prejudices, yes, those type of things placed on any community. That is going to increase thoughts of the other. So you were talking about the other earlier on. We can, we can also do the same thing that militant groups do as well to community members if we're not careful. So I think we right. all need to look at the world and different people with a very open lens and not have preconceived notions and ideas about them. Right, and also misjudgments as well. And um, uh, so it's very important to understand um, communities and that goes back to the role of empathy um, within holistic the holistic justice framework. And empathy is not a passive, passive lens. It's more of an active engagement with um, histories and concepts. And I would say very much um, within that vein, uh, that's how identities need to be reclaimed. Um, and I discuss 
for example, reclaiming the word jihad and repurposing it, for example, and that's why I use the word terrorist instead of militant activist, for example, um, because we need to label white nationalists as terrorists in order to reframe the narrative um, um, because our words reflect our worldviews. Um, so if we're going to take white nationalism seriously as a security threat, we also need to label it correctly as terrorism. And so reclaiming identities will be done at the community level and also through education. And that's why um, it's not necessarily through critical race theory, but it's through active engagement of um, understanding the context of history, understanding the events of history, and not necessarily both, both the past history as well as the present history, because the present is history in the making. Um, and I think that's going to take time not necessarily away from social media, but but to understand what you were also mentioning earlier and what I've talked about in the book too is understanding um, news and events from different angles and understanding the biases that are inherent within any presentation of events. And it's going to take a critical engagement and active listening and um, a desire to uh, fully engage. At the end of the Loopcasts, we love to give our guests a time to maybe touch upon something that we've not had the time to touch about on, or even elaborate on something that um, is close to your heart with your research. Like I said, the book is filled with so much information, and it's, it's almost impossible to discuss it all within a Loopcast session. So I want to hand over the floor to you, whether it's a final remark, or like I said, something that maybe you really would like to discuss that we haven't been able to within the structured interview. Yes, thank you so much, Chelsea, both for the opportunity to um, riff on something, uh, but also for your thoughtful questions and allowing me to put you on the spot a little bit. I do, um, uh, I appreciate your comments and it's, it's unfortunately not very often where I um, get to engage with, uh, with questions. We're currently in a pandemic, so I don't get to see as many faces as I'd like. Um, so thank you. I appreciate your, your, your thoughtful questions. Um, I think very often uh, pre-pandemic and, and most especially now during the pandemic, um, people feel disempowered and people of all skin tones and, and socioeconomic levels and um, backgrounds and geographies and origins and ages, etc. Um, across identities can feel disempowered. And uh, very often like their agency is being removed or there's just such a deluge of negative news. And I'd like for an, um, a negative events, I should say as well. Um, and I like people to remember that people create systems and people create institutions. Um, and of course, you know, one's privilege depends on one's positionality. So at whatever level you're at, whether that's simply in, engaging in learning on your own, or you're able to um, talk to a friend or a colleague or um, at school, for example, as a teacher, as a student, or as a classmate, um, at all levels, there is some type of engaging in advancing um, positive social change, um, whatever your role. So I'd like for the listeners to reflect on that perhaps in one way he, she, or they can um, engage and advance uh, positive social change um, in whatever place you're at currently. 
Um, and on that note, I'd like to read just a few paragraphs from the book that speak to empowering the individual, both as a human being and also as a member of, of the global community. E pluribus unum, recognizing our common humanity. Ours is a crucial period for the homeland security, economic prosperity, and social stability of the United States. The distance across identities, including religious, socioeconomic, and political strata, have never seemed more expansive. The United States has always been replete with contradictions, simultaneously calling for liberty while taking away the freedom of its citizens, espousing equity while minoritizing Black and Brown Americans professing justice while institutionalizing asymmetrical oppression. And at present, the United States is teetering on the precipice of choice between light and dark, constructive and destructive, to empower all equitably or to bestow benefits upon only the few. For the religiously minded, God will judge. For the atheistic or agnostic, history is the ultimate arbiter. It is both a moral imperative and in our collective self-interest to make the choice to benefit from holistic justice, which is for all, rather than to wreak mutually assured destruction by collectively disavowing one another. In the final analysis, it is only by fully recognizing our common humanity that we will be able to strive toward mutual peace and prosperity on this planet we all share. Well, I think those are very, very strong and important words to end on. It is all of our personal duties to be better citizens in this world for ourselves and to each other as human beings. And for our listeners, once again, the book is called Homegrown Hate, Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War Against the United States. Like I said, packed full of so much to read, um, and it's beautifully written as well. So I definitely recommend picking up a copy if you want to get so much more in depth on this topic. But for now, thank you so much, Sara, for coming on the show and discussing your book and your very important research. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for having me. And thank you, Sina, um, who is with us in spirit. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yes. And thank you so much to the listeners as well um, for just engaging with the material which is very important and with the thoughts i know i know it can be seem i know it can seem um, daunting or heavy um but it is so important um that we each uh, critically think for ourselves in today's world very much so thank you